Sinister Myth, How Stories We Tell Perpetuate Violence. This podcast challenges cultural mythologies about sexuality in the West, because so often they encourage, perpetuate, or foster violences against women and minorities. It is supported by an Ohio State Affordable Learning Exchange grant and is created by Zoe Brigley-Thompson and Brendan Walsh. My name is Nick White. I am an author of two books of fiction, one a novel called How to Survive a Summer and one a short story collection called Sweet and Low. I also teach creative writing and queer literature at Ohio State. And I'm originally from Mississippi. Great. And I'm delighted to have you here today to talk on our topic, which is really thinking about how stories we tell can perpetuate violence. And I think this comes up in your writing quite a bit. But I wanted to start off by thinking about the fact, actually, that you're from the American South and now living in the Midwest. And it's funny how I think both of these places don't have a brilliant reputation for you know, creating space for queer communities. And yet, maybe it's not quite as simple as that. And I wondered what your experience had been of those places and how it had influenced your work and whether there are any kind of more subversive elements to those places, actually. I think my, my work has been sort of the body of my work, and I've come around to this, to sort of understanding this. I think, I think I've become a better understander of my work after I've written it, and I can sort of see like two books now. I'm like, oh, I'm really into this sort of thing. And I knew that I always wanted to write about queer characters in the South, but one thing I did not know that I was going to be actively writing against until I was probably like midway through the novel was this common narrative for those who are queer and grow up in the South or grow up outside of a a metropolis. And that is when you come out, your journey is to then like leave the town, leave the country and go to the metropolis, go to the city. And that place in this urban setting is where you're going to find your identity. And I don't think, like you said, it's as simple as that because that assumes a certain amount of privilege, right? That someone has the money and the wherewithal to leave their hometown. Mm -hmm. Some of us can't because we have to stick around and help our parents pay the bills. We have to stick around and go to school there because it's just more affordable. Mm -hmm. We have to stick around to be because it's it's like the only thing that we've ever known and we're we're too afraid to leave. Or we want to stick around because we like living in small towns. We like living in the country. And as a queer person, I feel like those spaces should be open to us just as they are to to other groups, you know. And I'm very interested in how queerness manifests itself in spaces we wouldn't in popular culture readily think of it being there, right? And, and I'm constantly being surprised at the tenacity of queerness and how it shows up in the most unlikeliest of places. And while it is true that Mississippi does have a reputation, and to a certain extent, this is earned, right? It's not put on there for no reason that it's not like a very hospitable place for people who are queer, right? I think in many ways it is still very hard to live open 
and to live like an openly gay lifestyle in a small town in Mississippi, in these rural areas. It's not impossible. And there are people in Mississippi who are doing wonderful work to make it easier for folks to live more openly. But it is, it's, it's tough. What I, what I sort of like think about people who are doing good work down there is Professor Jamie Harker. I don't know if you are familiar with her work. Um, okay, tell us about that. She, she just wrote this wonderful book that I haven't read yet, but it's on my to-read list. It's called The Lesbian South. And if you're listening to this, you should, you should look at the book on IndieBound right now because it has a wonderful cover. But she's a wonderful scholar who teaches at the University of Mississippi. And she and her wife, Dixie, live in Water Valley, Mississippi, which is sort of like a little town outside of Oxford. And I think it was two years ago they opened up the very first queer feminist bookstore in Mississippi called Violet Valley Bookstore. Wow, it sounds so great. And it's a wonderful sort of oasis for queer folks, right? I think a lot of times we think about queer culture as like the products that queerness produces, the books, the movies, the music. But so often we forget about the facilitators of those cultures, right? Like the, the little bookstores and little communities that exist within larger heteronormative, albeit oppressive communities that, that create those spaces for that product to, to exist. And so I find it quite moving that that bookstore exists in Mississippi and they, they're a nonprofit they take donations. It's very small. It's located right next to the restaurant that Dixie, her wife, is a chef of. And I went there when I was on book tour for Sweet and Low, and it was just, it was wonderful. It was just like a wonderful little place. And I just kept thinking about like how I would have responded to a space like that had I encountered it when I was younger. Jamie tells these wonderful stories of, of kids who make pilgrimages to the bookstore. And I know it sounds very basic to like listeners who are probably listening to this, but it's the first time they've ever seen a gay pride flag. And so wow. they will like want to take a picture in front of it because it's the first time they've ever seen it, you know, and they are like being able to like be exposed to books that they've never seen before, or maybe they've seen and been too scared to pick up because of who might be around, right? And so it's re- I really think that places like that and people like Jamie Harker are doing like wonderful, wonderful work in the South. And I mean, relatively speaking, I mean, I did not come out when I was living in Mississippi. I came out my, when I came to Columbus, my second year in my MFA program, because I felt like, I mean, yes, the Midwest doesn't have a great reputation either, but like Columbus was so queer friendly. I felt so safe here. And so it really was kind of a perfect place for me. Now, I'm sure like if you speak to someone who's lived in Manhattan their whole life or grew up, you know, in the West Coast, they probably come to Columbus and like, oh, my God, this town is like, you know, too cloistered, whatever. But like but for someone like me who grew up in Possum Neck, Mississippi, like I found it to be like Canaan, right? (laughs) Land of milk and honey. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about the Midwest because obviously Ohio is a swing state and Columbus, as you said, though, has this um, really strong queer community. And it's interesting. There was a, a very funny sketch on The Daily Show 
about Columbus. Oh, I haven't seen it. It's so funny. And basically, it was a lot of people from Columbus saying, this is a better city for queer communities than San Francisco. <laughs> so, so people from San Francisco were like, no, no, it really isn't. It really isn't. It's yeah. very funny. Yeah. yeah. But so, yeah, it would, I, I'm interested to hear more about your, your experience of the Midwest and, and the kinds of complexities, because, again, it, it's one of these places where, you know, in some of the stuff that's going on in government, it's not necessarily helpful to, to queer no. communities. Well, you know, and the, especially, like, I mean, I'm thinking like in terms of like intersectionality right now but in terms of like women and their bodies like the heartbeat bill that the governor mm. signed in is just disastrous mm. i think and mm. and and it, we're, we're seeing it happen all over the country right like women are losing autonomy over their bodies and it's horrifying uh, i will say another thing that i noticed when i moved to the midwest for the first time like probably seven years was it seven? it's probably been a decade i think yeah it's been about a decade since I've moved to the Midwest, I noticed that racism was different here. Not less, but just like it manifested itself differently in the Midwest than it did in the South. And I'm still trying to like figure it out because naively, when I was living in Mississippi, I was around white communities and there were there was racism everywhere and I would watch the television and you would see these sitcoms and the white people weren't racist and so I was like oh so I guess like the Midwest the North they've solved racism it's just the (laughs) South that has like a problem with it right like it's just these like white people I'm around you know that have been like telling me this crap my whole life no actually like I come to the Midwest I'm like oh Midwest is actually racist, too. Like, it's just like a different kind of racism. Mm. I'm sure people of color are listening right now and saying, yeah, duh. Like, (laughs) you know, but like, uh, but uh, for me, it was very, very interesting that how how as good as Columbus is on certain things, it's still a very segregated city in many ways. Mm. We we see racism sort of still coded in, in certain ways here that I think you see coded in different ways in Mississippi, say. Mm. Um, but a big part of your upbringing as a child and, and teenager was evangelical Christian family commitments, right? Right. And I wondered if you could talk a bit more about that because I'm wondering here about how religious stories might influence people when they're growing up and particularly whether they might interfere with people's understanding of themselves and their own sexuality and whether that was your experience because I think in your writing that comes up quite a bit. Yeah, I grew up in the church. Um, my dad was, um, he led the music. He was the music director at the small church that we went to right outside Apostle Net called Unity Baptist Church, Southern Baptist. I struggled with it for a long time because I really, really wanted to believe and like I really really devoted myself I thought to Christ and to like everything that the Bible said I was the kid who like asked questions at church you know like stayed behind to talk more to the preacher because I didn't understand something argued with the deacons about theological questions Mm -hmm. to the point where my mom thought I was going to be a preacher right Mm -hmm. Um, my grandfather on his deathbed was like telling people that I was going to be a preacher. So there was like this pressure to like be a preacher. And I was supposed to like hear a call 
to be a preacher, you know, like that's like someone mm-hmm. who is called to preach and I've never heard any sort of supernatural thing call me to anything, right. you know, like so I was like, actually, I haven't heard anything like I, yeah. um, <laughs> I'm, I'm still like, you know, praying and nobody's answering. And, um, and the one thing that I began to realize is I, I hit puberty is how conflicted I was in terms of who I was attracted to. And I never used the term gay because I thought, oh, I'm not, I can't be gay. I can't. I just, you know, I know I have these attractions. I know that they're wrong. And I don't think I like as clearly articulated this to myself as I am doing it to you now. But Mm. it was sort of my internal reasoning, I guess. And so I was like, you know, there's nothing we're taught in in the church that there's nothing too big for God to handle. You take it to God in prayer and he will help you through it. And you would, I would take these things to God in prayer, like, oh, my God, I'm developing a crush on my best friend. Like, what, mm. is, what is wrong with me? And you got to take this away from me, God. I can't handle it. And, like, nothing ever happening. It's still being there, right? And feeling very, very conflicted about it to the point where I dated, I had girlfriends. But in terms of, like, being sexually active, not really. And I would, I would be able to like hide behind like religion as a way to say, Oh no, I'm saving myself for marriage. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was probably a really awful person to be in a relationship with, not just the sexual aspect of it, but also like whatever sort of magic happens between two people when they're falling in love, that kind of like heady intoxication you feel for someone when you're first with them can feel like a drug. You know, I mean, every pop song we've ever known has been written about this feeling of like first love and first attraction. It just wasn't there for me. Whatever that magic was, it just was not there for me. And I thought for a long time there was just something wrong with me. I was so perverted beyond repair. And it was something that I had to live with for a long time. And I wrote very bad abstract poetry about it. (laughs) (laughs) But then when I started writing fiction, I start, I've always been braver on the page. I started to explore queerness and queer identity through fiction. I felt safer there for some reason, because I could hide behind the frame of fiction. I didn't come out until I came to Columbus, and it was really, really difficult. It was really difficult. I had a, a friend in, when I was going to school at Mississippi State. He was from New Jersey. He and his wife had moved there. And I was friends with him and his wife. And when I moved to grad school to Ohio State, they moved back to New Jersey. I was in their wedding. And when I was in their wedding, he like admitted to me on like the night before his wedding that he was like a victim of like sexual abuse and um, he was struggling pretty hard and was in therapy. He was in a lot of pain. And though my pain was like separate from his, like I, I felt sort of kind of a kinship to that struggle. This idea of like day to day you live with a hand wrapped around your heart where you can't really like ever free yourself because you just feel sort of like suffocated. And when I went to Ohio to get my MFA, they moved back to New Jersey and he ended up taking his life. And that was like a huge devastating like moment for me in my life. It was just very sort of like horrific thing to go through. It was right around the time of when um, Superstorm Sandy was hitting 
New Jersey. And so when I was flying into the funeral, I was flying in. Like if I wrote this in a story, it would be too on the nose because I fly into New Jersey and there's devastation everywhere, sort of like mirroring the devastation I feel inside, how bad I feel for his wife and the family and what they're going through and sort of like that whole surreal experience. And I, after that experience, I went into counseling. I went into, I got therapy. I was like, I need help. I, I need to someone, a professional to like walk me through this. And through my discussions in therapy and counseling, I began the slow process of unwinding everything I had been taught or had internalized when I was younger. And that eventually led me to start slowly coming out to people. That's a very long-winded thank story. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. And in relation to what you're saying, very recently, Brandon and I were, had a, a short podcast which was about the subject of internalized depression. And looking at your fiction, I feel like internalized depression is too simple an idea, really, to explain what you're doing there with the characters and showing you know, how there's a legacy of things that have happened to them. There's a legacy of things that they've, they've brought with them from things people have said, the way people have treated them in relation to their sexuality. It seems too simple a word, really, to explain what they're carrying with them. But I wondered whether you felt that that term itself was useful in the podcast conversation between me and Brenda. We were talking about the positives of it and the negatives, the baggage it brings with it. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. I think I think initially when I was coming out, it was really useful to think about inter- internalized homophobia. Our brains, and especially in Western culture, we're, we're sort of like socialized to think in like a linear way, like beginning, middle, and end. Mm. But our lives are not stories. Our lives don't work on like a linear sort of track, right? Mm. So I think a lot of times we think of coming out as being like something you go through, and once you come out problem solved right Right, it's like you know probably and that's I wish it were that easy but for some of us it's coming out is an ongoing process if you're someone who lives in the south coming out is very much situational like when do you feel safe to come out can you come out and I'm sure it's, it's true for other parts of the country and other parts of the world as well and as you are negotiating that terrain of coming out and who to talk to about what you're also negotiating every experience you've ever had of being socialized to think that heterosexuality is normal and the default position for everyone. And so, you know, this idea of internal homophobia is not something that we can just easily attribute to a certain group of people. And some of us don't have it right. We're all internalize the oppressions that are around us and we're socialized to sort of like inflict them on ourselves and it's it's this idea of constantly trying to like figure out my internalized homophobia where it exists and how I can work on it Mm -hmm. you know and we see that we see those power dynamics play out power structures play out um, in minority communities all the time in the gay community, right? Like how effeminate men are treated poorly in gay communities, right? Like they're, they're sort of derided, bottom shaming, right? And it's not only is it internalized homophobia, but it's also like internalized misogyny, right? Mm. And it, it all mirrors sort of like the dominant culture. And so it's not something that just because 
I'm out and I'm in a successful relationship and I'm writing about queer stories. It's not something I can completely divorce myself from because I am a product of that culture. And so I think the term is useful, but I think it's not a term that we can like use as like something being in stasis. Queerness is always like in flux. I, I always have to like be on guard to kind of like challenge myself and to see where my privilege is blinding me to certain aspects of my community, certain aspects of the world. Um, because yes, I'm gay. I, I grew up fairly poor, but I'm also like white and cisgendered. And being white and cisgendered male, like that comes with a lot of privilege and constantly challenging those assumptions. I mean, being someone who's in academia, being someone who teaches students creative writing, teaching students how to have empathy for their characters. I mean, not only is it necessary for my soul, but it's also like necessary for my profession, right? Mm, yeah. And it's a constant like work. It's like something that I have to like constantly do and something I, I fail at a lot. Mm. But I, I think it's so important what you said there. And something that I feel is especially important is this sense that something that I think is especially important is this idea that sometimes there's a kind of impatience with people and, and the things that they're going through, whether that's any kind of experience of, of violence, really, that someone's carried with them, or, you know, whether it's internalized homophobia. I think there is this tendency for people to be impatient and expect people to be fixed you know there's this desire for like you were saying the end of the story to come and, and to have this this happy ending and that can be really problematic for people because sometimes as you were saying there's a sense that you have to keep working on these things throughout your life and and things can get better and I, I think sometimes people are stuck between a rock and a hard place people who experience violence of various kinds are often told there are two kinds of narratives. Either it's going to ruin your life forever and you're never going to be better, or you have to get over it. You have to be a survivor and you have to be fixed. And it's interesting, those two yeah. narratives. I think also like when we hear like it gets better, sometimes we think, oh, that means it gets easier. Mm. And it do I don't think that's necessarily the case. In some ways it does. But I think in some ways, too, it's you get stronger you learn to interpret the world in a more complex, empathetic way. That's what better might mean. It reminds me a lot of, to use a pop culture reference, have you seen the, um, the television show on Netflix, uh, Russian Doll? Oh, you... yes, I love it, love so it, yeah. I, I'm not going to spoil it too much in case people haven't watched it, but at a certain point in that show, towards the end, probably the penultimate episode, one character looks at another character and says, you know, can you promise me that it's going to get better? And the character says, and I found this to be an immensely moving part of the show, the character says, absolutely not, but I can promise you won't be alone. And so I think that is something I've, like, taken great comfort from, is the fact that one of the joys of being queer is like the community it's opened up to me and the 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 uh, people who have been my support and my my rocks through this the the community of folks that it opened up to me and I do feel that I do feel like that in some ways it is still difficult 
I still wrestle with things internally, but I don't feel alone about it anymore. I know that my friends who are queer are going through very similar things and that I'm not. And sometimes I think just realizing you're not alone as as Mm -hmm. very pat as that sounds, but like, oh, what I'm going through is very normal. Other people have felt these things. I am Mm -hmm. not an anomaly. That is, I take great comfort in that. Mm. In relation to this, I think your novel, How to Survive a Summer, is really relevant because in writing this novel, you delved into the disturbing world of gay conversion therapy. And the novel really is a, a lacerating critique of that, which is, is really important to have right now. Mm-hmm. And I wondered... What did you find out about gay conversion therapy when you were researching it? And how did it influence the way that you wrote the book? One of the things that I discovered that once I learned about it, it made perfect sense to me. But I, from going into my research about it, I didn't necessarily think about it, was those who are survivors of conversion therapy feel... A, not everyone who's a survivor, but uh, the people who I talked to who were survivors of conversion therapy, they felt shame, a lot of shame of having, of like going through it. There's like this kind of like weird, naughty shame that they felt. And if they've experienced it, they're very loath to want to admit it to someone to like come out as being a survivor of conversion therapy. I wrote the book when it came out, this was before the movie Boy Erased had came out and Gerard Connolly had mm. done like all his wonderful work that he's done. It, my book came out after Gerard's, but like before his movie. And um, he's done a lot of wonderful work. And I think people are like talking about it more and it's much more open. But I think there's like this level of shame that existed and probably still does for a cert- for some of us where it's almost like you're in the closet about something else. You're out about being gay, but you're, you're still in the closet about something that you went mm. through and feel like an immense amount of shame for, you know? And I found, I found that to be really heartbreaking, having like the things that we have to carry around with us and what that must look like and what post-traumatic stress syndrome looks like, how it affects the stories we tell about ourselves, how it creates blockages in the stories we tell as a sort of like survival mechanism. And I think that was the process of the novel. Like it was the character Will learning how to tell his own story and how like, you know, something that seems so simple, telling your own story, telling exactly what you experienced can be so revolutionary. Yeah, amazing. And of course, it's all very important right now because we know that the vice president, Mike Pence, has these connections to gay conversion therapy. So it seems to me that it's really urgent and important to be talking about it. it. So it was so strange when my book was coming out. My book came out the summer of my novel came out the summer of 2017. And I found out the cover of my book. I got the cover of my book the day of the election. And so I was like canvassing the day. I was in Ohio. I was canvassing in Columbus. And I got the cover on the same day. And I went home and the election happened. Mm. And it was, you know, living in Ohio. Ohio went red. It's just such like a level of grief, I think. 
uh, that I had to like reckon with and go through that I'm sure was felt by a lot of people listening. But yeah, it was very difficult. It added a kind of urgency to the book. It was never really a question of like me staying in the closet as an author because my work is so gay. <laughs> like just like, you know, it's just like I deal a lot with queer characters. That's like what I'm interested in. And so I knew that like, you know, now more than ever, it was important for me as a queer writer to like show up in Mississippi and give readings. Mississippi has three like they, they have three wonderful bookstores um, turn. I mean, they have more than three bookstores, mm-hmm. but like their three most well-renowned bookstores are turn row books in Greenwood, Lemuria in Jackson and square books in Oxford. That's like the Holy Trinity of like bookstores in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to each of them when, when I was on tour for the novel, each place that I went to, there was a group of queer people who always showed up to the reading. It felt very nourishing to me to like have that community show up and for them to see me and for the, me to see them. I have a trans character in my novel. I did a lot of work trying to make sure I did good with that characterization because I was writing outside my experience, right? And I didn't want to like fall on some sort of like problematic tropes. And so it was really wonderful to me to have like trans folk in the audience who come up and they like really love the character. That was like, meant so much to me. Um, Mm. Yeah. And I actually think that you were so talented in your characterization. Your characters are so well observed and you actually have a really kind eye when looking at your characters, writing your characters. And I think you're even quite kind to the characters who do really terrible things. And I wondered if that was hard or whether that was purposeful or how you went about that. I don't know that it was hard. I don't know that it was necessarily purposeful. I think that one of the things I try to do when I'm writing a story, even if it's in first person, especially if it's in first person, I want to have a good understanding as a writer, the writer who's creating the story, of the different characters in that scene, in that book, and understanding what their motives are. I mean, this goes all the way back to Aristotle, right? Like, understanding what a character wants. If I can understand what a character wants, I may not agree with how they go about getting it, but at least I can understand what they're willing to do to get what they want, right? And Mm. for me, that allows me access into characters and allows me to portray them hopefully in a more complex way because the thing about like writing antagonists in stories or or what we would call villains right is is that in their minds they're not the villains right Mm -hmm. they're the heroes of their own story like if you think about someone like in the novel mother maud right who you know is sort of like spearheading this conversion therapy and doing these awful awful things but in her mind she is having to do these awful things because she does not want to see these boys suffer eternally in hell. She is trying to save them from eternal damnation, and she will do anything short of killing them to get them to not have to suffer that. And once I realized that about her, it allowed me, okay, if someone really thought that, if they really were committed to that belief, what would they be willing to do? And so not that I agree with anything that she does, but it allowed me to like understand that. 
And I think a piece of me, when I was very much a believer, still practicing Christianity, still going to church, I think there was a there was a part of me that um, would have empathized more with Mother Maud because there's a part of me to going back to this internalized homophobia that would have done, if I had been able to more clearly articulate to myself, oh, I'm gay, I need to fix this, I would have broken my body in a thousand different ways if it promised that I wouldn't be gay anymore. I would have. I would have done anything short of killing myself because it was just so important to me that I be like what I thought God wanted me to be. And the thing about that is that person who I was, just because I come out, just because I'm, I know better now, doesn't mean that person just goes away, right? That person I was is still there, and it's someone I have to constantly be in dialogue with when I'm, when I'm thinking about who I am and what I'm writing about. Mm. And that's so moving in the novel, as well, that kind of portrait of what happens to people under this, these kinds of pressures from institutions like religion and family. It, it really is very, very moving. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I enjoyed it so very much. Me too, me too. Great. Thank you. Yeah.